Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really great to have you here. On this episode, I chat with podcast host, public health advocate, movie nerd, and my friend Barry Hummel. We chat about falling in love with new Hollywood, blockbusters, art house films, and there's even a little bit of talk on Werner Herzog. Let's get into it. Here we go. everybody. It's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It is so wonderful to have you here. Um, things are good. They've been a little crazy. I must confess, I've been home for two weeks and a few days since I got back from the tour. And uh, my 51-year-old body is still pretty worn out and pretty foggy. Um, it was an amazing experience, but I had no idea how tired I was going to be when I got home. So that's been an interesting little observation. Uh, but I'm back on the road and back at work uh, on stage again in just a a little over a week. The stick-arounds will be back added on the west side of the state on the 11th and 12th. Uh, we'll be back uh, in Grand Haven and Grand Rapids, Michigan. So if you're in Michigan on the west side of the state specifically, uh, next Friday and Saturday, the 11th and 12th of August, we will be out there. Please go to phonoforrecords.com. You can go to the stick-arounds page and check out all the details on the show. Um, I think I mentioned last week that my mom and I just booked a trip to Vietnam, Thailand, and Cambodia. I've been doing a little research about that. I'm starting to get excited already. Uh, it's hard to believe it's only three months away, uh, but that's an incredible thing. Uh, my mom, as I have shared with you, has been incredibly generous in the way that she has helped uh, our whole family see the world, and she has been very generous in helping me do this at a time where uh, things are a little sketchy financially for me, and um, to be able to take this opportunity to spend three weeks with my mom in a pretty magical place like that, to have an experience like that with her, I'm, I'm super grateful for it. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I may be sharing some research uh, with a couple of our Travel Talk friends. I may be doing some additional, uh, some recon and having some conversations. So hopefully you'll join me for those. Uh, wanted to mention again, I did recently set up a new email for the show. It's whatamimakingblog at gmail.com. So if you don't want to try to hit me through the Substack and you just want to do this the old-fashioned way with email, Send me questions, comments, guest ideas, uh, recipes, whatever you got. I would love to hear from you. Um, I do have Venmo and PayPal options if you don't want to support the show with a conventional subscription at, uh, at Substack. Again, if, if you can support, it is incredibly appreciated. It's whatamimaking.substack.com. And I did some research because we're about to celebrate a kind of a milestone thing here this week. And I'll, uh, I'll save that for, for the, the essay that's coming out here in a day or two. But um, I ran the numbers, and less than 10% of the folks who, who read and listen to this podcast on a regular basis are, um, are supporting with a paid subscription. And I understand that some of you can't, um, are not able to, and that is totally fine. I want to do everything that I can to make this available without a paywall. But that means I need your support. So if you're enjoying what I'm doing, please go to whatamimaking.substack.com. It's crucial. You can sign up for as little as $6 a month. The fact of the matter is that um, it is getting more and more challenging for me to dedicate this kind of work 
without getting more financial support. I don't want to make it sound like the show's going to go away, but the truth of the matter is that the, the more support I have, the more work I can, I can do, the more time that I can spend on this. So if this is a regular part of your day or your week or your commute, I sure would appreciate it if you would, would jump over to whatamimaking.substack and, uh, and consider a paid subscription because it really does help run what we do here. Additionally, you can make purchases over at the Funafor website at funaforrecords.com shop. All of those purchases help support my music, my Substack, my, my pod work. They're, they're all woven together. So please try to find us a way, a way to support however you can. It would make so much of a difference. Um, if you're already a, a paid subscriber or you're not able to be a paid subscriber, there's a couple of other simple ways you can help uh, sort of spread the show and, and, and kind of help our, our mission here. You can like, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen. And uh, you can always leave me a message at speakpipe.com slash what am I making? Get involved in the conversation. Call me. It works just like a good old-fashioned phone call and voicemail. You call me. It uses this, the uh, microphone on your computer or phone or laptop or whatever you're using. And you just leave me a little message, and then I can play it on the show, or I can use that to do some research or find a guest or track down an idea for you or you know hit upon a theme or something. I would love to hear from you. The idea... I've talked about this a million times. The idea here with these conversations and the pieces that I'm writing on a daily basis, the whole concept is to build community. I want to understand what culture means to us, what we're doing to build a current culture, how we're shaping it and dealing with it and interacting with it and being influenced by it. And I think that's all just really, really important stuff. And it's really fascinating. And it's helped me kind of get a greater understanding of, of what matters to me as a person and, and who I am and how I tick, culturally speaking. So I'm going to stop broadcasting how important it is for you to support this show. I think I've made my point pretty clear. Now we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of why we're here, which is the interview. You've listened to me do my little pledge drive, and I appreciate it. And again, if you can help, that's so much appreciated. But now let's get on to the, the real reason we're here, which is uh, my friend, and I think yours, Barry Hummel. Now, when I first approached Barry Hummel about the idea of talking about a film he loved that had flown under the radar, I'm not even really sure if I had a sense of what I was after. I was kind of grasping in the dark a little bit at, at a couple of, of ideas about what movies mean, what going to the movies mean, um, what happens when we have a really intense connection with a movie that almost nobody else has heard of. I wanted to explore all of these ideas and use them as a springboard for talking about movies and the culture of film. The vague conceit I had pitched for Barry was to choose a film that he loved that had a foundational impact on him but was a lesser-known film. In essence, this would be a chance for us to use a personal connection to a somewhat obscure flick and have that as a springboard for a conversation about film and the act of going to the movies. And toward the end of our chat, Barry mentioned that he's always happy to be a guinea pig for ideas such as these. And he delivers in spades once again. Now, you might remember that I interviewed Barry and his daughter Abigail back on episode 6 of the pod about their beer and music podcast called Pops on Hops. Barry and I dive in here talking about The Stuntman, a 1980 film within a film that explores the concepts of identity, control, and the shifting nature of reality. From there, we discuss what a massive impact that the early years of HBO had on the both of us and what an enormous shift that was in the way that we were able to view cinema inside our own homes. It's easy to take that for granted, but at the time it was revolutionary. We waxed poetic for the long-gone days of art house and repertory theaters that once curated cinematic masterpieces, art house indies, foreign films, and even cult classics. 
While we never say it directly, we both seem to dance around the sad fact that going to the movies these days is largely a soulless experience happening in hollowed-out multiplexes with little to no variety in the available films to see on a given weekend. As prestige television has taken on much of the cultural import of the smaller films that Barry and I loved and now miss seeing in the theater, it's obvious the days for which we are pining are almost certain to never return. It doesn't mean that we've stopped making these sorts of films, it just means that they can be tough to track down in the digital age, even in the digital age, really. And as we roll along, Barry shares stories about the art house theater that was near him when he was a young man, falling in love with New Hollywood in high school. And at the main run theater near his beach community in New Jersey, he saw films like Jaws and Close Encounters that might have been blockbusters, but contained a maturity and an ingenuity that was game-changing. And they opened up the mind of a young Barry Hummel as he cruised in and out of theaters in his youth, soaking up the American cinema one night at a time. There's a behind-the-scenes story of The Little Mermaid, a breakdown of the novel that led to Jaws 2, and a discussion of how the movies being made today seem to be less reflective of our current culture. Come hang with us and delve into the religion of film and the church of the movie theater. Here now is my chat with Barry Hummel at the movies. Enjoy. It's the dumbest thing ever. It's the, all right, let's get to let's get to why yes. I actually have you here. All right. So, do you remember how I phrased the idea for this conversation? I think you suggested, because it's been a while, but I think you suggested uh, a movie that, you know, meant something to you in your personal, or it meant something to you personally. Am yeah, I, something I like, a, like, yeah, some, I, I wanted you to talk about a movie that you had like a sort of a personal connection with maybe like a, a I, I really kind of want to talk about kind of like those memorable movie experiences doesn't necessarily have to happen in a theater but like those moments where you're really struck by a film and you're open to it for whatever reason and it just hits you in a way and i'm especially interested in movies like this where they're really under the radar and you can come at it from a completely unique and almost not objective perspective and maybe proselytize why you love something and the story behind it so but when I read your when I read your thing, this was the movie that instantly popped in my mind. Like it took why? me maybe five seconds to why why I, th- why this film? Why this movie? You're probably a little young to remember what HBO really meant when it was called Home Box Office in its infancy. Because in the 70s, I, right, I became a fan a film fan in the 70s, probably on the back of Jaws. And not a, not a bad place to start there. No, it's a great place to start to really connect with a movie. And and there was something specifically special about 70s cinema. If you look at a lot of the films that came out in the 70s, the way they were shot, I don't know if it was the film stock or the cinematography, but you can look at films from that era and they have a look and a sensibility to them that, you know, things like French Connection and The Godfather and even Close Encounters, they have a look to them that is uniquely 70s and storytelling that's uniquely 70s. So I came to movies in that era. But you remember, you saw it in the theater and then maybe your next opportunity was to see it on television 
hacked to pieces. Right. I remember when I saw Jaws on TV the first time it aired, and there were whole scenes that were missing because it was too bloody to show on TV and this sort of thing. So home box office at the time was revolutionary. Now, they did not get a lot of films initially. I mean, I always laughed that I think for five years they ran nothing but Slapshot, Rooster Cogburn and the Lady and uh, Swashbuckler. Like that was in that was it. They rotated those three films in an endless loop and then they would pop the George Carlin special on at night. <laughs> Right. That's what they had. They didn't. We, nobody uh, was selling I'm the rights remember, at the time. I'm trying to remember what year it was when we got HBO in in the little town that we live in. It was probably 81, 82. So I was nine or 10. Uh, and I remember. Um, do you remember the guide that would come every month and you'd get the little magazine? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they would tell you what was going to be on and little descriptions. It was amazing. You were so excited. You'd go, <laughs> you could go, oh my God, take There's this job and shove. It's going to be on at seven 30 on Tuesday night. I'm going to set the VCR and you could, you could, you could, and so we like tape, I taped everything I could off of HBO. Like well, that was my, see, that was another yeah, thing. Like, well, we had, I'm, we, I'm, my dad was an early adopter. My mom wanted it so she could record stuff for class. So she could use it for teaching. Oh, wow. And, um, so he, for whatever reason, adopted VHS as the the preferred format. And we had that before anybody I knew had anything, before anybody had a Betamax or a Laserdisc player or any of that stuff. That's amazing. And uh, I I have a story that I've told a few times, uh, but I'll tell it again. Um, when uh, when we first got the, the VCR, we went to the local place that was in this small town and they didn't really have much in the way of videotapes. They didn't really have a lot of VHS stuff, but they did have a Laserdisc player you could rent and, oh, a, pretty, wow. and a pretty decent sized selection for the time of Laserdiscs that were available. And so we rented this. My cousins were in town for a week. My dad rented this Laserdisc player. And I think probably over the week, we probably rented a dozen movies. Hmm. And we taped them all off of the Laserdisc player right on to VHS tapes from Radio oh, Shack. Oh, you rascal. <laughs> yeah, I pirated them. And so I was like, I was able to watch like uh, the first two Star Wars films and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws and Close Encounters. And so I had that stuff. And then I had this whole, you know, glut of things I had taped off of HBO. And that essentially was my first film library. I mean, that was, you know, I mean, I was I was spending it watching Animal House and vacation, but it was my first film library. Well, that's a good start. That's yeah, amazing I mean, about the laser. I mean, I'm not sure a lot. of Yeah. Well, and then I figured out that you could do uh, it had an audio dub button. So you could you could record other audio onto the film and the version my my mom might still have it. The version of Raiders of the Lost Ark that we have in the opening sequence when Indy and Alfred Molina have the thing with the spiders, you know, where he takes them, he's like scraping them off his back. Yes. In the middle of that scene, while they're walking through this like spiderweb ridden cave, it switches from the music that John Williams wrote to the scene in Animal House where um, Otter seduces the dean's wife. And so like there's this lounge music and you hear a little bit of conversation and then you hear a cocktail shaker. 
and then a little more lounge music all while they're walking along the corridor in in south america it's really hilarious that's it's pretty very funny, funny. yeah it's totally ac- totally accidental i clearly hit it for like 60 seconds and so there's this stretch of so i've probably developed i have probably seen that film more that way than the correct way i'm sure of that yeah, when you put your Blu-ray in now and that doesn't come on, you're probably disoriented. I, What's going on? Where's my Where's my talk? Yeah, it, it, you developed an art form and then you didn't pursue it. That's the thing because <laughs> you could have done like the uh, what was the Woody Allen movie? Um, it was the Japanese or Chinese spy film that he did where he dubbed all the dialogue on it. What's up, Tiger Lily? If you've not seen oh, that, yeah. that's a joy to behold. Yeah. So anyway, the, the HBO home box office at the time became. The only way you could see a theatrical release in its entirety uninterrupted, and it was amazing. You know, we didn't have VHS. We couldn't rent the things. So I'm at a friend's house. This is the summer I graduated high school, 1981. And we're just there hanging out. The TV's playing in the corner of the room. It's on HBO. It's just running in the background. And this movie is what's playing, The Sunt Man. I know nothing about the movie. And I was, you know, I went to the theater a lot. So you're talking about a movie flying under the radar. I had never really heard of the film. And I didn't really know what was going on. But I kept in the middle of conversation with my friends. I keep looking over like, what is going on over there? You know, there's this scene early in the movie where they do this one take gag. It, they're shooting a World War One war picture uh, as part of the plot of the film. And they do this scene on the beach where there's a whole crowd watching and there's a, an explosion and the crowd's cheering the explosion. And as the smoke clears, there's all these bodies all strewn on the beach and they're dis, they're severed limbs and people ripped in half. And the crowd reacts like, oh, my God, what just happened? These people are all injured from this explosion. And then the guy yells cut and all the special effects guys start getting out of the sand. And you realize you've been duped. And I was like what is this movie? But I'm, I'm not really watching the movie. It's just, I'm getting bits and pieces and dribs and drabs, whatever. So now I have to find it. I have to see what this is later. So I find it on HBO one night I'm home and I watch this movie and I am fascinated by it because the, the basic premise for anybody who doesn't know is there is a fugitive from the law. He's on the run. And as part of fleeing from the cops, He's on a bridge when a stuntman in a Duesenberg basically tries to run him off the road and then drives off the bridge and drowns. This happens to be a stuntman on a movie set that's filming principal photography up the street. So the stuntman takes off from the bridge or the, uh, the fugitive takes off from the bridge and he happens upon the film set. And when he gets there, he sees that scene I just described. And there, you start to get this sense of what's real, what's not real. And as it plays out, the director of the film, who's um, played by Peter O'Toole in one of the most amazing performances you will ever see, realizes he has an opportunity to remain there shooting because he substitutes this fugitive in for the dead stuntman. He hides the fact that the stuntman died on the bridge from the cops and uses this guy to replace him. And then it just becomes three things. It becomes a discussion of... What's in this guy's head? What's real versus what's on the film set? A love triangle between the director, the lead actress, and this fugitive from the law. 
And then this film within a film thing that's going on where they're shooting, like I would like to see the finished film, like what they actually shot. And all of this is going on with this incredible script that has so many callbacks and setups and payoffs. It's just beautifully written. It's beautifully shot. It's beautifully written. And in any particular scene, you don't know what's going to happen next because you don't know if you're watching something that's really taken place or they'll cut to reveal that it was a special effect that they were doing in the film. And I watched that thing. I must have watched it five times when I discovered that I could watch it on HBO. So much so that the opening credit sequence of the movie is the basis for my award-winning student film in college. Just the opening credits of this film inspired me to do an entire film for college because it's this elaborate sort of uh, – it's sort of a um, – a thing that dovetails all around everything interacts with everything as they just play the credits and it's all revolves a little bit around an apple um and that apple keeps paying off later in the film as well like the, the, at some point the stunt man they would call him lucky is his nickname and the thing he's the fugitive who becomes a stunt man he uses the apple it's almost a symbol for him you know kind of confronting the director because it was the director with the apple at the beginning so elaborately written and Nobody like it flew under the radar, had three or four Oscar nominations, was nominated for Best Director, Peter O'Toole for Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, because it's based on a novel that I've never found to be able to read and uh, won nothing. I think the score won in like the Golden Globes or something like that. The score is amazing. So I made a silent movie based on that concept of the apple where you follow the apple for the entire film. That was my student film. It's called That's The awesome. Apple of My Spy. And it's available online. I can uh, send you a link if anybody wants to go watch it. It's, oh, yeah. it's pretty bizarre. Put that and in there. Years, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, I'll send you that link. So years later, in fact, so it was a silent film. And um, I had to, in a video class, um, I had to put a score on something that didn't have sound on it. So I pulled that film out. And I put a score to the film, and it's the so- soundtrack from this film, The Stuntman, which, by the way, I owned on vinyl. <laughs> That's how geeky I am. I actually bought the soundtrack on vinyl. Uh, I have any number of soundtracks on vinyl. I, uh, I, I was a huge collector of soundtracks when I was yeah? a teenager out of college. So, oh, yeah, I got a million of them. What um, What was your movie-going experience like as a kid? Like, what would uh... – So – it started off – so we lived at the beach in Ocean City, New Jersey, and we were fortunate to have, I think, four theaters at the time. Now, the problem by the time I was a teenager was they would get – a mate, like one of them would get, say, Jaws or Star Wars, and that would be the only thing they would show for the whole summer because next week we got a new crowd. So they never had to move them out. So you didn't get a lot of frequent films, a lot of turnover. Until I got a driver's license, I was kind of limited to what was on the boardwalk. My best friend in high school, my best two friends actually, but my best friend uh, is an animator uh, and a director out in Los Angeles now. And we were film geeks. I mean, he was a film geek and I kind of glommed onto that. Like I found a kindred spirit. So we went all the time. Once we had driver's licenses, you could go offshore during the summer. There was a million theaters where the rotation was heavier. We discovered a theater. It was down at the beach. 
It's called the Little Arts Theater. And the first time we went was because he saw an ad in the paper for old 3D movies where he had to wear the anaglyph glasses, which, believe it or not, I have a pair right here. Oh, my God. Anaglyph glasses. Um, And we went down and saw The Creature from the Black Lagoon, and it came from outer space in the 3D and had the best time. And so we would go to that theater they would run double and triple features and we'd go down on a Friday night or a Saturday night and sit through six hours of movies down there. They would, it would just fascinate. In fact, I saw magical mystery tour and let it be as a double feature there. That's, That's where awesome. I saw those two films. And so we saw a ton of stuff. We saw a lot of arty films, artsy films. My um, English teacher, literature professor in high school, um, was a huge film geek. He would give us recommendations. He would tell us, you know, oh, Stockton College is playing, you know, Aguirre, Wrath of God. You guys should see this. So we saw foreign films. We did a ton of this stuff. That's why this thing about the stuntman flying under the radar is so interesting to me. Well, you and I have had a conversation about Breaker Morant. That was one we went to see yeah. in high school because, you know, our our literature professor in high school said, you guys really need to see this film. It's really good. So we saw all kinds of weird stuff um, and not your traditional. We saw all the blockbusters too. Don't get me wrong. I remember seeing Return of the Jedi on day one. We bought tickets or we planned to meet the three of us, my two buddies from high school. We go down there and when the third guy shows up, he goes, oh, you're not going to believe this scene. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I couldn't wait. I went in the matinee. Like, what? (laughs) We were crazy people with films. And so we saw a ton of stuff when we were high school students. No, I think that's amazing. I uh, There used to be a, a theater here uh, in Lansing, but kind of right on the, on the border between Lansing and East Lansing in this little shopping center called Frandor. And there's this little maybe 60-seat theater called The Odeon. And they would get uh, – usually they would get one film a week. It was usually an art film, often as a foreign film. And, you know, it would kind of be the kind of stuff that Siskel and Ebert would talk about on At the Movies that maybe wasn't the first film they talked about, but it was maybe the third or fourth film they talked about. And so I saw a lot of stuff that way. But the other thing that they did was they would do like old repertory films and they would do them at midnights on Friday and Saturday. Oh, wow. So I can remember my dad going to take me to see Harold and Maude when I was 12. Oh, wow. Um, we went to go see Rear Window that same summer. What a great um, film. I saw Dial M for Murder in 3D. Uh, <laughs> but then, like, you know, if there was a new Woody Allen film, that's where it was going to be. If there was uh, a new Herzog film or a new Vim Vendors film, it wound up there. Um, and so I saw a lot of that kind of stuff. I saw a lot of the sort of British new wave stuff from the nineties, like, um, uh, some of the Ken Loach stuff and train spotting. And, um, uh, it's not, uh, it's not English, but, uh, breaking the waves. I remember being really impacted by, I saw that there. Um, I saw, (laughs) I saw the, Four and a half hour Kenneth Branagh Hamlet there with a catered intermission. Wow. It was awesome. They had a, they had like a, had somebody come in and do like snacks and sandwiches and sodas. They're like a half hour in between. And they were like, well, I we might as well make a thing out of it. It was great. It was really fun. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I saw all kinds of shit there. That was, that was, that was a really foundational place. And you either, it, 
I was just talking to a friend about this yesterday. The, the thing that was beautiful about it was there weren't a million choices. It was, do I want to go to the Odeon this week or don't I? And my yeah. parents would go almost every Tuesday because it was two for one. And they didn't have stuff going on on Tuesday nights. And so we'd have dinner a little early and they'd go to the 7 or 7.30 show or whatever it was. And sometimes they'd take, they'd take me. It's so sad that those kinds of places don't exist anymore. I mean, you barely, I mean, even your first run theaters are tedious at this point. I go to, I have a 16 screen theater and over half of those or two thirds of them are the same movie with 85,000 running times. And you can't get, you can't get a movie to break through anymore. No, well, and I'm, you know, like I'm really encouraged by, you know, obviously the whole Barbenheimer thing. Is kind of exciting. I went to see Oppenheimer on opening night. It's the first time I've been to the movies in like four years. I don't even remember. I think the last thing I saw was 1917. It was the last thing I saw in the theater. And last thing I saw was uh, the. Um, oh my goodness. I can't think of the title of it. Um, it was the film with Brad Pitt and. Um, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That was the last film I saw. Right, and that's like 17 or 18, so it's been even longer since you've been to the theater. Yeah. And I think a lot of the same folks who used to kind of, you know, who in the 90s and in the early aughts were making indie films now have shifted to prestige television. You know, if you can make... I agree with that. If you can make a 10-episode arc of your vision and somebody's going to give you a paycheck and there's a platform for it, that seems a lot easier than trying to come up with enough money to sell your next indie film to maybe get it to stream on Amazon or something. I think um, you're right. You know, I, I am really grateful that there are still people out there. Uh, like uh, the first person I always think of who I, I think is kind of the uh, kind of the bellwether for me right now, of great independent filmmakers who, who just do truly unique work. That's her own voice. Are you familiar with Kelly Reichardt? I, I'm not sure. I bet if you start to talk about it, I'll know. Yeah. So she's a filmmaker from the Pacific Northwest. I think she's based in Portland, but it doesn't matter. But, um, she's made a number of films that take place in that part of the world. Um, one of them that I really like a lot is called three women and it's three different vignettes with Laura Dern, Michelle Williams and Kristen Stewart. And I'm normally not a Kristen Stewart fan and she's excellent. And these are all based on short stories by a, a woman from Montana. And, um, it's, it's really good. Um, she did another film with Will Oldham from Bonnie Prince Billy, uh, who's a musician, um, called old joy about two old friends who reunite and go camping mm. for a weekend in the Oregon wilderness. And one of them has grown up and the other one hasn't. And uh, I have a dear friend and he and I say that however you react to this film is indicative of which one of those people you are. (laughs) So if you hate that movie, you might be, you might be the guy who's got his shit together. And if you love that movie, you might be a guy who needs to get his shit together. Um, but what if I like it for the right reasons? That's the thing. <laughs> is there, like, is there a so then, so that's where I think it gets really genius is because then you go, wait a minute. Why do I feel that way about that? Like, yeah, it, well, it's, it makes you it's, think, right? It, exactly. It's one of those films. It's very self-reflective. And the first time I saw it, I didn't like it. I didn't like the film. I was, I was, it was uncomfortable. 
And I realized it was because I've been both of those people. And that, that discomfort to me was a sign of what a genuine piece of art it was. I think you, you brought up an interesting point, which is the movies I like the most are the ones where like three days later, I'm still like, well, I'm still thinking about it or I'm still making connections. Um, like one of my all time favorites was Memento, which I think was Chris Nolan's first film, if I'm not mistaken. Might be his uh, second. Seen, maybe. I, I, it's early, though. It's, it's, it's like his it, first yeah. big feature. It's the first it's thing. The first put, one. It's the one that put him on the map. Yeah. And I watched that and rewound the tape and watched it a second time in the same sitting because um, I love the film- I love that. That film is such a unique experience. Um, Even if you don't love it, you have to admire it for its dedication to the thesis of the idea and that it is well executed and interesting. Even if you're not emotionally moved by it, I don't think you can argue those points. And that's what I want. I want somebody who's going to show me something different. who's going to challenge me. Um, have you seen Oppenheimer? I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet. We were away when that when you know of we course, just got yeah. back when that weekend opened, and I may make it back to the theater, man. I'm thinking, but if it's if that's the one, it's gonna it's not gonna. Be I'm bad. glad I did. I'm glad I did. I'm <laughs> glad I. If nothing, honestly, uh, go because the sound design deserves to be heard in the theater. It's really it's really well done. Well, that's mm-hmm. the thing. The other thing is, and and it goes back to the thesis statement of your whole project, which is. I should go and support the things I want to see more of. And that's one way to do it, right? Go and let it have some box office success because otherwise those films won't get like, if, if we don't go, they won't get made. Right. Or, or they won't get, they won't get theatrical releases. Um, One of the things I'm going to try to do here in town is we've got this little theater. It's been here forever called the sun. It's the same. It's the same little theater that's in every small town across America. You've all been there. It's a 400 seat room with a big marquee out front. There's one screen. That's it. What I want to do is talk to those folks and go, hey, could we do some of these older films at 10 o'clock at night? I could come in and give a little 15 minute talk. We could watch the movie. We could do a Q&A afterward. People can bring their own booze. They can buy concessions from you, you know. Make a little money, get some people in your theater, maybe get them to watch something they've never seen before, and maybe get some people out of the fucking house. Yeah. Well, that was the premise of the Little Arts Theater, right? It was things that they were well beyond first or second release, right? They were dusting off. Like I said, Magical Mystery Tour, Let It Be as a double header. You you don't think you get people to show up. I mean, you can't get the old Let It Be anymore, but I'm just saying things like that would get – people out of the house do it i'll tell you how to start start with and i'll pull up again go get yourself something that you have to see in your theater like a 3d an old 3d black and white movie and make people have that experience because that was the thing that sold us was you couldn't do it at home you had to do it at the theater and by the way it became an impromptu like it was so much fun that people were I mean, it came from outer space is not a very good movie. So people people were doing the uh, giving it the Rocky Horror Picture treatment. I was just going to I was just going to bring this phenomenon up. I was just going to say this is not a thing. I mean, like when I was in high school, 
they did this every Saturday night, every Saturday night at this place called Spartan Triple X, not Triple X, the Triple X. Right. There were three theaters. It wasn't dirty. Uh, that I know of. <laughs> well, one uh, of them was. One, one of them was filthy. It was just gross. <laughs> um, but uh, the other two were fine. Um, no. So, but they would do this every, they would do this every weekend. And uh, it was a, it was a ritual. And the same people would go every weekend. And yeah. I went a couple of times and it was fun. It was fine, but it was never my, it was never my thing. But like that kind of stuff where you turn it into an event. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that the Bruin view thing hasn't really taken off in a different way. Maybe there just aren't enough people who love movies. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I don't used know. To go to a, like one of those cinema draft house type places in Gainesville years ago, they would right. have second run movies. I think I saw raising Arizona there, for example. Um, and you could go and they had, you know, kind of pub fare and you could order some yeah. beer and, and watch the movie at a cocktail table. And that was a really interesting experience, a different way to see a movie. The other idea I have for you, and I saw this years ago, and it ties into something else you said earlier about your dubbing of the of the VHS with the wrong audio. I saw the old Batman movie in L.A. with an improv group dubbing all the dialogue. So they ran the movie silently, and about five people in the front did all the dialogue Clearly, they had kind of pre-scripted sure. parts of it, but they did a performance art piece in front of the movie. So, again, it's something you can only see there. Um, have you seen you like know, the, the riff tracks or the like the Mystery Science Theater 3000 kind of thing? Yeah, it's very similar. Well, the, yeah. the Mystery Science Theater thing was sort of poking fun of the movie in real time. This was, again, what what's new? Uh, Tiger Lily kind of approach which was we're going to do we're going to redo the dialogue and make right. a completely different film out of this and that was i mean i when did i see this in the early 90s and i'm still talking about it it was right. a fascinating thing to see and so that might be another it's, like if you're if you're trying it's to have an a high experience. profile yes and if you're trying to have a high profile opening for your project if you do something like that, like the 3D movie or the improv thing to get people to the theater to see what's going on. Here's my film list for the next uh, eight weeks or whatever. Right. Here's season two. Yeah. Buy season tickets. Um, you can get a lot of buzz from a weird event that maybe you generates interest in the theater. That little arts theater was never not crowded when I went down there. It and again, I, I just think it's so much of it is like people are clamoring for community and we got this epidemic of loneliness and people don't know how to solve it. And so if you just throw a bunch of stuff out, I think, I mean, the, the, if the tour taught me nothing else, it's that people still want to get together and, and be around other people and do things they like. And I think smaller venues are a better option. I think people are still fearful of a giant, I don't think it's as bad as it was say a year ago, Right. but you know, I went to playoff hockey all spring. It was plenty packed. People showed up. But the the fact of the matter is it took a long time for people to go back to concert venues that were sizable. And um, I think people were still digging the smaller crowds. And, you know, the, those old theaters have so much charm. They're so unique compared to the boxes that you get at the mall, right? Yeah. Um, and it's in your community. I think there's probably something there that you could uh, you could turn into a, a working project. No I doubt so. about that. I, yeah. And I would like to I'd like to do some. I don't want to sound, you know, elitist or anything, but like, I feel like I have 
a ton of knowledge. And I think there's probably an audience out there that would be interested and would want to learn some stuff. And I could share some films that a lot of people are just not aware of. And I could, I could let them see sort of like foundational or essential films on a big screen in their hometown for not a lot of money with some context and some history and say, this is why this film is important. This is why people still talk about this. This is why this, this is what happened when this was made. You know, even if it's something as obvious as Casablanca or Citizen Kane, you can show that to them. Most of those people haven't seen it before. Well, and if they have, they haven't seen it on any sizable screen. Right. I mean, I just like, I just saw Casablanca on a big screen for the first time within the last 10 years. How about that? Yeah. I mean, that's a movie I've probably seen 25 times, you know? Yeah, but it's different, right? On a big screen. Absolutely. It's, it, it's, it, and it's the way it was designed to be seen. That's the thing about, you know, Oppenheimer, part of the reason to go to the theater is to support the endeavor so that you get movies like Oppenheimer. You know, I, I make judgment calls all the time. Well, why would I, why would I schlep to a big screen to see this movie? There's nothing like big and special about it. Why would I? Why would I do that? And I got to get that out of my head. I mean, I stopped going a lot to the theater um, after the kids kind of aged out of going. Like, sure, but that I just saw happens. All the Marvel films in the theater, but I couldn't get the kids to go see, you know, anything cool or clever. And then Abigail's in SAG, so she gets all these SAG screeners. She's just like, I'll wait till I get the screeners. Well, and you're not. You but the other thing me. is, like, they're not. You know, you're not going to take the twelve-year-olds to go see Arrival. You know, right. You're not, you're not, you know, you're going to see Pixar and that's great. Yes. But, you know, and that was what was really fun for me once the girls got to a certain age because they're like me, they're big movie buffs. And uh, they went, they went, all four of us went Friday night to Oppenheimer and then three of them went to Barbie last night. They got the whole Barbenheimer. They got the whole Barbenheimer weekend in in three days. And I'm going to see, I'm going to tough it out and I'm going to, I'm going to go see Indiana Jones tomorrow night. Because it's on here. In town. Uh, that's another one that I feel like I should go see. In the um, I don't I know. I feel why. like it's going to be not good, and I'm going to enjoy it anyway because that that franchise is super important to me. Yes, I totally agree with that assessment. I, I'm going in with such low expectations. I saw somebody on Twitter yeah. who said something along those lines. He goes, "I really enjoyed this. I think maybe it's because I expected it to just be awful." <laughs> well, here's the <laughs> like, thing: why why should I expect anything more than just have fun? The whole reason you fell in love with Raiders of the Lost Ark is it's just undeniably fun. It is so much fun. I don't know if there's a film that brings me more joy to watch than that movie. Just yeah, pure, I always say that's unadulterated my joy. I mean, a lot of people cite um, The Last Crusade as the best in the franchise, and it's really great film. But I will remain I don't know an originalist. Re- I'm going to be an Antonin Scalia about this. Um, me too, because I, because what you can't capture is what it was like to sit in the theater in 1981 and see that. Not because it was a brand new concept, right? We all know what Indiana Jones is now. That's the problem. Right. We're living with the legacy. So when you walk in that theater and this thing happens, and I can say the same thing about Star Wars, to be honest with you. It was sure. you know, groundbreaking at the time because nobody had done it. You watch it now and you're like, really? The, you know, there's some... The, the thing that always busts me up is they always talk about the uh, lightsaber fight and how lame it looks. Because when you watch the prequels, you go, why are these guys like 
shoulder to shoulder and slogging it out like this. And uh, I actually have seen a uh, some sort of a deep fake online where they actually redo that with more of the style of the prequels. And it's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Like, I wouldn't encourage Lucas to replace it at this point, but he's replaced everything else in the movie. So why the hell not? Yeah, why not? But, but I, and I'm not a person that likes to retcon that stuff. I would like to see Star Wars the way it was. I know they've upgraded it over the years and I tinkered with it. I want to see I, it the way I saw it. Yeah, I want to see the I want to see the seventy seven cut on film. I don't want any digital restoration. I don't want the added shit. I don't need Jabba the Hutt to show up for thirty seconds. No. I don't need it. I don't need any of that stuff. Give me the movie that I had when I was six. Just give me That's that. What I want to see. Give me that. Let me be happy with it. it. It's a little bit like, you know, if somebody gave you a new cut of Sunset Boulevard with six extra minutes in it. It isn't necessarily going to make it a better film. How are you going to make a perfect film better? You can't. I like seeing that stuff, but as you know, I'd like, no, I like to know that it's boom. I want to put that, put that on the criterion menu for me to watch after the film. Absolutely. Don't put it in the movie. I want to see Buddy Epson's screen test as the tin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I don't, I don't want to, you know, like I don't need the the really bad extra song that they sang in the in the woods as part no, of the movie. No, you know what I mean. Like it, there's a reason it landed on the cutting room floor. I, Let's leave it there. I, and I, you know, I I've long thought once a thing is a thing, unless there are written specifics that hey, this is not what the intention was, and somebody bastardized it like uh are you familiar with the recut of touch of evil based on orson welles's notes yes okay so this that's one exception to the rule right but i tend to think that like if a director's vision or a musician's vision or an author's vision is achieved and then released in a certain way that's the thing like we don't take it apart we don't remix it we don't add stuff to it we don't you know when when lucas does it with his own shit that's his choice Right. But when people start going in after the fact and doing it, oh, yeah. Then no, it no, starts no. to get like really, you know, like, you know, are we going to try to cut out all of the, uh, it's so it gets down to like the, 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 the scene that was cut in the French Connection recently. Did you hear about this? No. Disney owns the Criterion Collection and the, the, the edit of the French Connection that they are airing in the uh, scene that takes place in the bar where he collects all the stuff and makes the milkshake, there's a sequence in that where he and Roy Scheider are talking to each other and they both use the N-word a couple times and they clipped it. They took it out. Uh But they still let him say it once at the end of a particular scene, I think. But they cut out a section that was quote-unquote unnecessary or offensive or something. And my point was who's going to draw that line and how far are we going to draw it? Are we going to try to make, are we, are we going to try to make a clean version of gone with the wind? Are we going to try to, I mean, cause you're going to, cause what you're going to wind up with is 15 minutes of Scarlet wandering around talking about Tara and the rest of it's going to get cut. And I don't, and I well, agreed. (laughs) Um, It'd be, it'd be a better film if, uh, if Sherman had burned that too, but, uh, um, but a lot of love for going with the wind today, folks. but I will say it's an important film. It's an incredibly yes. well-made film. Yes. And it is, it is 
historically valuable for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that it's a piece of propaganda that needs to be presented that way. That in addition to being a piece of fiction that people fell in love with, it was also PR for the Klan. And even if you love it today and you don't like the Klan, you have to accept that that's the truth. Yeah, and I like the thing you with the French Connection. It's like once is okay, but three times is like. Well, the other question that I asked in the piece that I wrote about it was, I was like, well, we didn't cut out any of the unnecessary police abuse and violation of civil rights, and it's not like that's not an issue today. Yeah, that's my thing is put it in context and explain why these things are not appropriate. If you I, watch, I get into this if because, you watch the – oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bear. I was going to say, so part of – you know, as I, as a lot of people know, I do tobacco prevention. is like my day job, right? Youth tobacco prevention. I used to do a whole thing on smoking in the movies and the impact it had on encouraging kids to smoke. And I have a whole thing. I have another clip I'll share with you where I went and I did this thing. Um, about It was called Walt's Ashes. And it's a uh, – a collection of all the smoking from Disney movies cut to smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Um, and the point I was making was that there's a ton of it in there. Now, would I cut it from the movies? Absolutely not. People say, oh, you want to No, I want people to be aware of the impact these visual images have on you. And let's not do it anymore. I'm not saying if you cut the smoking out of Peter Pan, to your point, that would also be a 15 minute movie. Right. And if you cut the racism out of it or the Native Americans, it would be a three minute movie. So right. you can't you can't go back in time and say, I mean, it. There's the a, other the other thing to remember, to too, had. is that is that part of the reason that film is so important is it's maybe the best cultural time capsule we have. It's it's absolutely it's, it's better than a physical relic. It's better than a museum piece. Uh, a, a magazine article or a song it's 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 multi-sensory it's immersive you can feel a moment simply by watching a movie that was made in a time period if i show you four screwball comedies you're gonna get an idea of of what the conventional wisdom was of what a newsroom looked like in new york city in 1936 because right. you saw the front page and um you know uh his girl friday or whatever um, the, the point is that I can show you a set of cinema and I can explain to you how it relates to the era in which it was made. You know, you were talking earlier about the seventies and the way those films look and the way they feel and the way that they're, they're built. There are a ton of films that are a direct reaction to sort of this new awakening that, that the institutions and structures that everyone took for granted might not be as infallible as they thought they were. You're living in the world of the Vietnam War and Watergate and all kinds of other upheaval, not to mention all the race riots that happened in the late 60s and the and the push for civil rights. Like, it's a new world. And so we have a new cinema. We literally get this thing called the new American cinema that comes from it. You know, the French New Wave comes out of the decimation of World War II. Italian right. neorealism, right. the same. Yep. Same thing. You know, the, the beautiful uh, work that comes out of, of Germany between the wars, the Weimar stuff, the stuff going on at UAF, you know, shit like uh, uh, 
Nosferatu is a great example. That's made in 1927. So that's made before the rise of Hitler and after the war is over. And so there's the, there's just this amazing stint of just incredible German film that happens that is, and I'm, what is the word I'm, I'm looking for here, Barry? It's, uh, it's X something, the, the term expressionism, German expressionism, German expressionism, German expressionism. And so there's this amazing, but again, it's, it all harkens back to sort of these horrors of world war one. So it's a lot of shadows. It's a lot of light. It's a lot of, uh, the machine beating us down, like in, in films like metropolis, for example, like, um, do you, I guess I'm sort of rambling, but I'm, what I'm, I don't feel like we get that now. I don't feel like if I look at the movies that we're making that I get a sense of American culture. No, I agree with you. And and that started in the 80s. That's a Reagan era. It, like if you think about the films, compare the movies from the 70s to the films that were um, big time films in the 80s. You know, the uh, the John Hughes films and the you know, the comedies of the 80s. I always think about like the uh, Albert Brooks films or um, uh, like broadcast news or terms of endearment, kind of those bigger sort of like uh, working professionals with first world problems kind of a thing. Like we're not we're not dealing with paranoia or uh, connections to new new people or new worlds or new ideas it's things got a lot smaller in the 80s they got they got a yes. lot they got a lot more um aspirational almost almost all the stuff that you watch from the 80s has this sort of icky like greedy undercurrent to it yeah yeah and the, and even if they're films that are like films in the 70s always had a dark edge to them you know, some of that was the content, but even in films that even a film like Close Encounters, where the content's not so dark, that stylistically, that would have never sold in the 80s. Right. It had to be it had to be E.T. in the 80s. Right. It couldn't uh, it be wasn't Close it wasn't as uh, it wasn't as um, palatable. It wasn't a spoon fat. No, close, it had close a depth encounters, to it. Close Encounters requires a lot of effort on the part of the viewer. Well, I, I think E.T. is a marvelous film. But it's effortless. It's great, yes, and I love exactly it. And right. I will watch it this afternoon if you give me the opportunity. Right. You didn't have to work but so hard. But it's easy to enjoy. It's a film. easy. Yeah. Um, That's exactly. No right. one's. No one's making you. No one's making you work. You know. That's I, why I, when you see a film though, like Memento, right, or Blood Simple, some of the Coen Brothers stuff where you have to work a little harder. I think that's why that stuff stood. Even some of the Martin Scorsese stuff, like, um, uh, oh, shoot, I'm blanking on the names of the movies. Um, one of my favorites, Rupert Pupkin is the character. What's that called? Oh, King um, of Comedy. King of Comedy. Yeah. Where you have to a, work a little harder. Well, and you also have to watch, uh, the thing I'm, I need to watch that film again. I haven't seen it in a really long time. The thing that I remember about that film so vividly was I was so just, I recoiled at Jerry Lewis. He's so good. He's He's so so good. good. And he's so, he's so committed to like, nope, I'm just a venal, selfish asshole. And I don't have any empathy and it was completely it's okay. That to me is the biggest 
one of the one of the biggest removals of a, sort of like your genuine type in a performance. Uh, the only other one that I can think is that is that big a leap that is that effective is Mary Tyler Moore in Ordinary People. Yep. Right. So good example. So she she was America's sweetheart. I saw that movie when I was nine years old. I didn't know she was mayor. I just thought she was a cold hearted bitch who didn't love her kid. And because she's so good, it took me a long time to accept her as mayor and as and as uh, Rob's wife on the Dick Van Dyke show. I'm pretty sure that was 1982, Matt. And to my point, and again, the film that that I brought to the table, the stuntman, they're films that feel like 70s films. They're right on the cusp. They're 1980 and they play like 70s. There's a there's a plays very much like that. I think I think maybe the the word I would use to describe some of that 70s stuff that we were talking about is there's a cynicism to it. Yes. There's a, there's a, um, there's a jaded quality of um, kind of like that, that's sort of like, there are those filmmakers and I get this a lot with Hal Ashby. This is a, a guy who, who I think it kind of epitomizes a lot of the 70s films where a lot of the times it feels like kind of the subtext is we all know this is a fucking joke, right? Like we, you, you get that we're all taking this very seriously and none of this matters. It's fucking dumb. We're all dumb. Like it's this very Zen approach to making a comedy. For example, I think Harold and Maude is a great example of that. Like, yeah, you, you have decided this is weird because you've made decisions that are about stuff that doesn't matter. Who gives a shit if these people are 70 years apart and go to funerals and hang out, they're in love with each other. And the fact that it doesn't make sense to the rest of us doesn't fucking matter. It yeah, doesn't matter. I agree with that. You said that about cynicism and, and there's even an element of that in Jaws. <laughs> I mean, part oh, of the sure. reason Jaws works so well is, is the, you know, you watch a shark movie. Now you watch his Meg two or whatever's out Oh now. yeah. And it's all, you know, it's all CGI and there aren't really any stakes involved. And you go watch a movie like Jaws and you realize, you know, there's some stakes involved. You know, the mayor is the best cynic of all, right? Well, we'll just leave the beach open right. and hope yeah. for the best, right? Yeah. By the way, I, so I was, a, I was a voracious reader also when I was a kid. So I bought um, two books related to Jaws. I bought the Jaws log, which tells the story of the making of the movie, which if, if it's still available is an amazing read. Uh, and I still have a paperback copy of it. And the other book I bought was the book to Jaws too. And this is, this goes back to a weird era where uh, again, because you couldn't really see movies except in the theater, they would license books based on movies and you could read the movie too. Right. I read star Wars before I saw it in the theater, if you can imagine that, but Jaws 2 had a script that they licensed a novel for, and that's not the film that came out. Oh, and no the kidding. novel, you talk about a cynical piece of work. The novel for Jaws 2 that was released is freaking brilliant. And none of it's in the film except for one scuba diver getting eaten. Like it's so good. Because the town's trying to rebound from this shark thing so they they decide they're going to open a casino so now there's the mobs in town and the mayor's all involved with the mob and there's all this dark underbelly to this city trying to recover from this disastrous shark thing that happened like three summers earlier it's so good man and the movie's like a popcorn like jaws 2 played like an 80s movie it doesn't play like a 70s movie. oh it's not a good film it's a bad it's bad a movie it's, it's a, a bad, bad film. it's a bad movie 
and it um, only gets worse from there. Oh, <laughs> the Jaws franchise. <laughs> uh, is it just? Is it just three? Is that when it's personal? Is that that was the Jaws? Th- no, that was Jaws four. Jaws, Jaws three 4. was Jaws three D. Oh, it was Jaws three D. Somehow, right. yes. Michael is an adult yeah. now working at SeaWorld, and there's Correct. a shark loose in the in the park. That yes. is a piece of unbelievable filmmaking and then um mm-hmm. and then jaws, and then 4, jaws is, 4 is when it's personal like, yeah like, it was it was jaws 4 colon this time it's personal yeah michael kane's in it if you can believe that and and they're chasing uh, ellen, the sharks chasing ellen brody to the caribbean it's like it went off the rails very it, quickly it's uh <laughs> it's difficult to it's difficult to carry that out once you blow up the first one i don't mean to spoil here's the end the of a film that's nearly 50 years old Here's the thing. If you if you went and saw Jaws 4, the new Indiana Jones can't have fallen at, so far off the rails as that film. So you're going to have a good experience if you go see Indiana. I guess Jaws that's the way to look at it. Is it better? Is it better than Jaws 4? Like that's our that's our that's our it, bar. It can't be worse. <laughs> Uh, okay, oh so we're gonna go on a on a scale of how how personal is it this time? That's right. And if Pick it gets, your worst film you've ever seen and use that as your rating um, system. Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> have you ever walked out of a theater, Barry? Have I ever walked out of a theater? I don't think I have, but I've sat through some I've sat through some bad stuff. Yeah, me too. What but do you, I don't what, think I've what, ever what uh what terrible film comes to mind? Can you think of one? Oh my God. I'm not sure I really got a Geary Wrath of God. Okay. That was one that I got referred by my my high school literature professor, and a bunch of us went down to the Stockton College and sat through it. That's a weird, weird It's a film. weird film. How old were you? That's probably I had a driver's license, probably a senior in high school. It's probably 18. Okay. There's no way that an 18 year old kid should understand that film. I don't understand no. that film. Yeah. No. I, I mean, know. I haven't seen it so in 20 years, one. but still. Yeah. Uh, that, that I remember one. going to see, uh, I went to go see a the theater very much like the one in my town on the other side of Lansing in a little small town, also called The Sun. I saw Soap Dish. Uh, with Kathy Moriarty and uh, Robert Downey Jr., I think. And uh, it was it was a deal where it was all this. It took place on the set of a soap opera. And it was all the and it was supposed to be really funny and really kind of sn- it was awful. It was it was dreadful. We didn't leave. But it, it took willpower to sit it to sit through it. It was bad. Yeah, I usually do a little bit of homework before I end up. I didn't go just for the sake of going. Um you know what I mean? Like I, I, I did a little bit of research cause I read a lot about them and the reviews and I had some sense of what was going on. Um, I'm trying to think of something I may have taken the kids to where I was just like, I'm sitting through this, you know, for them. And, but I was a huge animation fan. So there wasn't too many bad animated. Films well, and you, or anything. you probably got to see a fair amount of that stuff early, just simply because you knew people in that world. Right. I sometimes knew, the coolest thing ever happened to me as far as a film that ultimately I saw. And by the way, I saw this in the theater as an adult with my wife and uh, we had no kids, but, or no, I don't even think I was married. I went out on my, I went to a, on a vacation with my buddy, Steve, when I was a student, medical school student. So this was 87. And he and his buddy, Jerry Reese were doing a pitch at Disney. They had directed this movie called the, the brave little toaster. Oh my Disney God. Acquired, 
Yeah. Disney, Jerry directed it. Steve was one of the directing animators on it. And that core team who made the movie, Disney bought the rights to it and ultimately aired it on the Disney Channel. It never got a theatrical release. I'm not sure why. I don't know the politics. But they had been invited to pitch their next project at Disney. And it was called Samurai Cat, if I'm not mistaken based on a children's book. And I happened to be on vacation out there when they were gone for the pitch meeting. So before we could do anything that day, I had to go with Steve. We had to move these big boards over to the Disney studio, which was not even on the main lot anymore. It was in, in Burbank and an offsite because animation was, you know, Disney animation in the early eighties was faltering. Oh yeah. So, I mean, this was before uh, the big Renaissance happens in 89 when little mermaid comes out. Well, that's where we're going with this story, Matt. That's exactly yeah. what was going on. So Roy Disney had been brought into uh, the nephew of Walt to kind of revive the animation sector. But they were in this little – they were like portable trailers on a weird lot. Anyway, I go down. I'm, I go <laughs> help them carry the boards in, and they're in a little screening room. And I sit down. I sit right in the front. I'm, you know, I'm an asshole. I just sit right in the front. I'm not even with the team, but I'm right in the front, right in the middle. <laughs> So I'm sitting there and I'm talking to Steve sitting next to me and I get a tap on my shoulder and I look over and I swear to God, it's like looking at Walt Disney. He's sitting there, Roy Disney sitting next to me and he goes, well, you pass me that ashtray. <laughs> I have to reach over Steve and get this ashtray from like two seats down. Pass the guy the ashtray so he could smoke in the screening room because like his uncle, he was a chimney smoker, chain smoker. Anyway, they do the pitch. Now I'm not part of the pitch. I'm just sitting there like I'm important. and. Uh, you know, Walt, Walt, Roy's reacting to the stuff. He hits me one time. He goes, that's pretty good. I go, yeah, it was great. Like, I'm, like I'm somebody. <laughs> so we get done with that. And then he gives us a tour of the studio. So we're walking around the studio. There's like five or six of us walking around with Roy. And we walk by and there's storyboards up. And Walt says, now this is we're we're this is it this is how we're going to save the studio we look and he takes us over and it's the storyboard for under the sea from the little mermaid oh wow and so i'm looking at the storyboards of the song sequence and this guy's telling us this is it this is going to bring us back this is old school disney movie and he was correct he was correct so when that movie came out i had to go see the movie because of that connection and i probably i think i saw it by myself man i yeah. don't even think i dragged darby to the it was like we were we just started dating and the last thing i needed to do is go like, i was in uh, i was like a junior in high school when that movie came out we we all went to go see that yeah no it was it was great yeah. and it was exactly what he promised and so what a cool experience to have sat there next to that guy anyway they didn't buy samurai cat and the rest is history yeah well <laughs> Roy, Roy, Roy did all right for himself, though. Yeah, he didn't need he did Samurai okay. Cat based on Little Mermaid. No, he had Little Mermaid, and then he had Beauty and the Beast in his back pocket. And the Lion King in production as well, right? I mean, yeah, just, I mean, it's those it's three amazing. right in a row, right? Isn't that right? Yeah. 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 It was, and then, and then I think it was Aladdin on the heels of that. And then I think it was. At some point, they got to um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. You took like the Hunchback of Notre Dame and Pocahontas and Emperor's yeah. New Groove. I I worked at a video store for a few years in the early '90s, and so I saw all of this shit all yeah. the time. Well, I did because at that point, now, now I had kids, so we were going yeah. all the time. The other one I saw in a theater that I had a personal relationship to was um, Nightmare Before Christmas. 
because my buddy Steve did storyboards on it. And so obviously when it comes out, it's like, I got to go see it so I can see his name scroll by in the credits and uh, loved it. When I saw it. it was not a big hit. It's kind of a cult film now. I mean, everybody loves the thing, but back in 93, I think it was um, like nobody was really into it. And I went and just fell in love with that film. And part of it's the personal connection, right? Like I know the behind the scenes story of Steve did a storyboard thing that Tim Burton said it's too scary. We can't use it. I thought that's that's your claim to fame, Steve. You 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 yeah. drew something that's Tim Burton said it was too scary to use in a movie, and it was in the Oogie Boogie sequence. <laughs> he had a thing where Oogie Boogie grabs two cats and squeezes them, and these two the, the the cats, the skeletons and the blood and everything squirt out of the skins of the cats. <laughs> Tim Burton went, nah, that's too much. <laughs> oh man. Anyway. Oh, Barry, thank you. We discuss enough of the stuntman. I think we got it. I think we got the stuntman. Oh, I I do have one more question for you, actually. Uh, Do you have other movies that portray a film in a film that you like? Can you think of others that you enjoy? Like Sunset Boulevard came to mind. I mean, obviously that's that's a slightly different thing, but like I kind of love the meta thing. Um, if it doesn't get too deep, I've heard that's one of the kind of the knocks on the new Wes Anderson is that it's a film and a film and it gets a little too Russian. Oh, is that right? I didn't catch that in the the trailer that that was film and a film. Yeah. I will give that some thought. I know, you know, I'd have to go back and kind of process that in my head, but I know I, I can tell you TV in a film would be uh, Tootsie would be high on my list. I think that's a, a, you know, I, I love that film. I really Love that. It's interesting. I'm curious to see how that film has aged now. I haven't seen it in the new era of gender. And well, we probably can't see it in Florida. It's probably been, it's probably too woke. I'm sure it is. Well, I did, I, I was only there for a few hours, but I did not explode when I crossed your state border as a socialist, despite the fact that Rick Scott said I was not welcome. Well, you were hanging out in socialist country up there in Gainesville. You know? I went to um, Hawthorne, dude. I was not hanging out in the socialist country. I was in Hawthorne. I went to a farm in the fucking middle of nowhere. It was gorgeous. I think that was, we call that a sanctuary. I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's really your classic farm in North Central Florida. I don't think that's Um, the classic. I don't think, I'm going to guess that uh, a dairy farm or a a cattle farm a little nearer to Ocala would not have had the same. Yeah, you were probably about on the edge. You were living on the edge yeah. there in Hawthorne. But I, yeah. I will give that some thought about film within the film because I know I've seen many over the years and I'm just blanking right now off the top of my head. But I, I've i always – I love meta. You talk about meta, right? You talk about Christopher Nolan always seems yeah. to be meta, right? Uh, being uh, John Malkovich would be another one. There's, yes. another, there's another example of a film in a film that I think yes. you about. Really good film, yeah. too. Really interesting film. That guy's an interesting director, too. Have you ever seen the one he did with Nick um, Nick Cage? Um, oh, Adaptation. Adaptation? Yeah, yeah. That's a uh, really interesting I film. like that film. I watched it again a few years ago for a film club, and I liked it less on the most recent viewing. There was some stuff about it that was a little – it felt a little hammy in spots that I didn't notice before. Yeah, probably. And, um, well, again, that said, I would take – I would sorry, watch – Chris Cooper and Meryl Streep do almost anything. Yeah. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to have that, like, the reaction to a film the first time you see it. We talk about that with Indiana Jones, right? Even the concept of Indiana Jones, the first time when you see it and it's new and fresh, 
And then you go back and watch something. And the more you watch it, you may discover more of the nuance or you may discover more of the flaws, right? So when you watch a movie, you know, take a movie like Jaws, flawless. I could watch that any day of the week. I'm never going to find a flaw in that movie. Um, I'd say the same thing, uh, you know, about a movie like The Stuntman. But I could see where some things that I liked that are so elaborate uh, might be on a second or a third pass when you you know the surprise or you know where it's going might not be as good and you might start to see some flaws and and I can see where adaptation would fall in that category. Yeah, it's it's a that's one of those films where I think the first time you see it there's a lot of sizzle because of the presentation and the way that it's framed. And it's still really interesting but like the last the last third of the film was much clunkier than I remembered. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um I can see that. I love um Oh, uh, what is the name? Why can't I think of the name of the film that uh, with uh, Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey, where he has his memory erased? What is that? Eternal called? Sunshine. Eternal oh, Sunshine Eternal, of the Spotless Mind. Spotless Mind. I really adore that film. I, I think that film is terrific. Yeah, that's one I've only seen once. And I was like, ah, I got to watch this one again because it's so good. Yeah. And Kaufman wrote that, but it was directed by somebody else. So. Right. Yeah, the other really one great. that you made me think of, where I, I'm wondering if it would be as good the second pass. Have you ever seen the movie Searching with John Cho? No. His daughter disappears, and he's tr- trying to locate her, and it's he's going through her computer and her phone. So it's all this digital stuff. It's almost told through screens, like we're on right now. Okay. There's nothing in the real world. Maybe it's a news report. Maybe it's a phone screen. Maybe it's a screenshot. Maybe it's a search engine, whatever. Right. A lot of the scenes are him staring at a computer screen, you know, doing the search on the computer. And you it sounds a lot like, uh, what's it called? Lock with uh, Tom Hardy, where the, the film's oh. like 90 minutes long. And the whole thing, I, I, I haven't seen it. I believe the whole conceit is that the entire film, he's on a series of phone calls in his car. And so the whole thing takes place inside his car. And oh, so you see, I've not seen that. you see stuff reflected on the windows and the dash and on the phone. I've only seen clips, but it's, it seems like an interesting conceit. Yeah. I'm drawn to things that are told through a unique kind of storytelling. Again, going back to the stuntman, I think there's a unique storytelling that's gone on there that I find fascinating. And so these kinds of things, I went and saw searching that was the same year I saw, um, uh, the, uh, the other film we talked about 2018 is the last two films I saw in the movies. Oh, right. and, and I really liked this John Cho film, but once you know the end, if you go back and watch it, if the structure, if you see the things buried in the structure that were maybe clues or this or that, that's a fun experience. Right. If you just go back and the whole thing is just the conceit and there's nothing else added to it. Right. Are you, you know, just, answer, are, are you just hunting for the next plot point or is there deeper stuff going on? Is there more subtext? Right. Are That's there, I, are, is there foreshadowing? Are there ripples of other things that are happening in characters lives that should have given a thing away or that you should exactly. have picked up on because you were too focused on the A, B and C of things. So um, the great writing would be if I got more out of it and the, flat flaws like you were talking about earlier is if well i know the answer now so this is just i'm just moving going through there's the motions, no then it's there's no good. mystery left everything is right. everything is unveiled so there's no reason to watch it again Agreed. thanks for doing this my friend i really I'm uh it's always, always fun. happy to be a guinea pig how about that huh what an absolute treat barry hummel 
just a genuine bona fide sweetheart just willing to play the game be a guinea pig try whatever what a great conversation i love barry i love the movies i love talking about movies um i hope you enjoyed this as much as i do i would love to know what you thought of this i'd like to have some more conversations like this maybe make this a semi-regular thing um i'd like to maybe bring back some former guests and get some new people on to kind of talk about this um I'd even like to make it a thing where I talk to my bandmates about it. Maybe get some calls from you at uh, speakpipe.com slash what am I making and get some, some input from you on what some of your favorite lost and under the radar films are. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It means the world to me that you're here. Again, consider making a paid subscription over at whatamimaking.substack.com. Thanks again to my friend Barry Hummel for being here. Thank you to you for all your support and encouragement. And I will see you again very soon. Be well, my friends. That there was the production of Mattathy. And his ADHD help too.